Our scripture reading today is from John 1, 4 to 5, 9 to 13. This is found on page 886 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder where the darkest place that you've ever been is. I've had the chance in my life, the joy, the gift of visiting actually three different international dark sky parks. There's this organization that certifies um, particular parks in parts of the world as international dark sky spaces, meaning that they are remote enough, far enough away from cities and have taken steps to reduce all light pollution, that they're just spectacular places to view stars. So we've gotten to go to Capitol Reef uh, National Park in the middle of Utah, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Big Bend National Park in South Texas at the Texas-Mexico border. It's one of the most remote places you can get to in the the lower 48 states. And also Petrified Forest uh, National Park in Arizona are all places that are international dark sky parks, just incredibly beautiful places at night away from all light. But by far the darkest place that I've ever been in the recent years is actually inside of Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota. So Wind Cave is one of the longest and most complex cave systems in the entire world. It's under the kind of the Black Hills of South Dakota near Mount Rushmore and all that. And you can visit there. Our family, when we were there, we went on a tour. And as they always do, if you've ever been on any cave tour, they always, at some point in the tour, right, they turn off all the lights and they just give you a moment there in the darkness to kind of feel that. And so you put your hand in front of your face, you can't even see it. And not only in those moments can you not sort of even see your hand in front of your face, you almost feel physically the the darkness because it's just so, so dark, unlike anything else that you can get anywhere except for in a cave deep underground. And as eerie as that was, I cannot imagine Rachel Cox's experience. Because in 1989, or 89, excuse me, Rachel Cox got lost in Wind Cave. She was actually trained. She was 18 years old. She was training. She was a college student training with a group of people to do search and rescue work in that cave. But she got separated from her training group And she tried to follow their voices back as her headlamp went out. But because of the echoes in the cave, she actually ended up going deeper into the cave, further away from where they were, and was wandering lost deeper and deeper into the cave. No light, no food, no source of warmth, no way of communicating with anyone in the outside world. Once the group realized that they had no longer had Rachel with her, they began immediately searching the cave, but it took 36 hours before she was found. And she describes the moment like this. I just can't even imagine 36 hours in the dark and not knowing what is in front of you, around you, or if you would ever find a way out. 
And she describes hearing rocks falling in the distance. And she cried out for help. And then she said, suddenly I saw this light and this man with a big beard reaching down toward me saying, Rachel, are you ready to leave now? And she said, I said, are you God? (laughs) Caves are places of deep darkness. And we have a strange relationship with the dark as human beings, I think. Because at one level, we all sort of intuitively fear the dark, right? We, most kids, like you grow up, you're afraid of the dark, even as adults, right? We, we're afraid of it or at least uncomfortable with it. I actually remember being at a hike at Big Bend National Park. We were hiking before the sun came up because we wanted to watch the sunrise over this mountain. And there's all these signs, like you're hiking in mountain lion country, especially in the dark, like be careful. I was like, I remember being afraid. Like I'm on this trail, I've got this headline, there's a few of us. I was like, there could be a mountain lion just in one of these trees or over the branches in the dark. Maybe that's not your experience of being worried about mountain lions, but maybe you've been in a dark parking garage at night or walking to your car alone, hearing a strange noise in the house that wakes you up out of a sound sleep. So at one level, we fear the dark. We're uncomfortable with it. But at another level, we actually kind of love the dark. I mean, if you want a good night's sleep, it's so hard. Have you tried to sleep in the day? Maybe some of you who do shift work as doctors, nurses, law enforcement, maybe you end up sleeping during the day if it's part of your work. It's hard to sleep in the day. You've got to get the room as dark as you can. Or if we're trying to hide something, pull something off, the cover of darkness becomes an asset. Well, light and dark are main themes in the Gospel of John that we're looking at together. And John, who's a follower of Jesus, he uses the metaphor of light a lot in his writings. We have not only the Gospel of John, which is an account of Jesus' life, but also three letters that John wrote to churches that he was helping to pastor, to care for. And the theme of light and dark come up over and over again. And light expresses this idea of freedom and goodness and hope and beauty and life and joy. And darkness is the symbol of imprisonment, slavery, death, destruction, despair, evil, death. We hate the dark. We fear the dark. But if we're honest, we also know that, that there is darkness in the world. And, and if we're really honest, we know that not only is there darkness outside in the world, but there's also darkness inside of us as well. And so the question that we want to ask, and that I hope John can give us some answers to this morning, is this. What do we do about the darkness that is outside, around us, the dark side that's, that's in us? What do we do with the darkness around us and in us? That's what John is addressing here. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to grab one of the pew Bibles. You can turn there. Um, you can use the table of contents. That's why it's there. Uh, if you're, again, if you're newer to the Bible, there's two big parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is in the New Testament. So you go about two-thirds of the way through, lay that Bible open, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and it's right on the first page there. Or you can just put this into Google. If you just type John and then the numeral one, you'll find a website that will pull up the text for you. But these first three weeks that we've been looking at the Gospel of John together, we've been in verses 1 to 18. And people who study the Bible, Bible scholars who give their life to this, they call this section of John the prologue. And it really functions to introduce all of the themes and ideas that then John is going to unpack throughout the rest of his account of Jesus' life. So the prologue in that way, it functions a lot like an overture in a musical. So if you've ever seen, uh, gone to like a big kind of Broadway musical like Wicked or Hamilton, if you've seen these or listened to the soundtracks, right? You know, the first piece of music, the overture, it's kind of a medley that introduces all the different songs and melodies that you're going to hear throughout the play, throughout the musical. 
And that's what John is doing in this literary way with his writing. It's brilliant. All the themes that he has seeded in these first 18 verses, he's going to come back to again and again. And light and dark is going to be the one of the ones that he comes back to most often. And if we're going to deal with the darkness, we have to recognize that the world can be a very dark place. I think the world can be a very dark place. Now, that's actually literally true. I mean, for most people, in most times, and even around the world today, light was a super scarce resource. We're so used to uh, electric light where we can just flip a switch at any time of day or night and have as much light as we want. But it's easy to forget that for most people at most times, and again, even in many places around the world today, light after the sun sets is an incredibly scarce resource. You can light a camp or, or a lamp or a candle or a lantern, but the light is incredibly scarce. And so I think even for John's readers, these images of light and dark probably resonate at an even deeper level than they do for us. But regardless of how much electric light we have, I think we all feel at some level the emotional, the spiritual, the, the moral darkness that no amount of electric light can defeat or do anything about. I mean, think about we just prayed this morning uh, remembering the history and ongoing effects of racial injustice in our country. It's, it's profound, right? And, and next week, we're going to remember in Sanctity of Life Sunday, the Roe versus Wade decision legalizing abortion in the United States that has led to millions of vulnerable human lives being snuffed out in the name of personal choice, sexual freedom, people in desperate circumstances. And, and both of those are made even darker by how much division and vitriol surrounds them in our cultural context. There's COVID and cancer. There's division in politics and pandemic responses. Uh, not to mention the darkness of, of scandals in the local church, of failed leadership, of abuse. And we can go on and on. We don't have to. We, we get it, I think. We can open uh, a news website or listen to the television, and we know that there is darkness in the world around us. But into that dark world, and John's world was no different. He writes these words. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The idea there is all humanity. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light. That's what John's point is. He is the true light who's come in to confront and to deal with the darkness that is in the world, the darkness that is around us and the darkness that is in us. And at every point, the darkness tried to overcome it. If you just look at the story of Jesus' life, from the moment that he's born, King Herod is trying to kill him. His parents have to flee with him as a baby, as refugees to Egypt. Sometimes we forget that part of Jesus' story, that he was a refugee in order to stay alive. And then as he grew into an adult and, and started his teaching and training work with his disciples, the religious leaders of Israel constantly were trying to arrest and kill him. And when they eventually did succeed in arresting him, Rome, the imperial government, carried out the sentence of death and crucified him. But he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, the place of all light and goodness. And no darkness could defeat the empty tomb. Jesus came into the world, and the darkness could not overcome him. That's an interesting fact about how John talks about the darkness here. Because for John and the other biblical writers, darkness is not just passive. 
It's not just the absence of something, the absence of light. In, in the metaphor, in the, the imagery of darkness in the scriptures, darkness is actually an active force. It's not just like you're in a dark cave in the absence of light, but that actually the walls of that cave are crushing in on you, trying to destroy you. In John chapter uh, 1 here, in verses 9 and 10, John says that Jesus is the true light that's coming into the world, but that the world didn't recognize him. Now, we're going to hear this language of world a lot in the Gospel of John, and it can have kind of three different sorts of, of meanings, this language of world. John uses it in different kinds of ways. Other biblical writers in the New Testament use it in different ways as well. One way that the word world can be used is just to describe the, the, the planet that we live on, the, the, the world that we live in, the physical creation of the, of the world. Another way that it can be used is to describe the people who live in the world. So John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament says, in the beginning was, or sorry, that's the beginning of John. Sorry, let me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In that case, John's not primarily thinking of God so loved the, the rocks and the animals, and he's, the people. God so loved the people in the world that he gave his only son. But then there's a third use, and so what Paul or what John is using here, and how Paul often uses this word as well, is the idea of the world as a system that is opposed to God's design and goodness in the world. Sort of a system organized against God. And that unfolds in the biblical story really early on. You see that as an example in the Tower of Babel story where people say, we're going to gather, we're going to make a name for ourselves. You see it from the moment that Adam and Eve rebel against God in the garden that human beings set up systems that are opposed to God. And that's what John says is talking about here, that third meaning. John Mark Comer, who recently wrote a book called Live No Lies, is actually a book that uh, some of our women's ministries groups are going to be going through this fall or this winter. So if you want to take a look at that, if you're a woman, you can sign up for one of those, one of those groups. But he writes this in, in a blog I think is so helpful. He says, much of what our generation calls culture Jesus and the writers of the Bible call the world a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized into a culture that is organized around rebelling against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And again, that's what happens in the garden with Adam and Eve is they redefine what God has said is good and what God has said is evil. They choose to define right and wrong, good and bad on their own, apart from God's wisdom. And that can get then embedded into whole systems of culture. So one simple example of that is you can think about in our culture, the, really the sexual revolution that began in the 1940s and on to the 50s, 60s, and into our current day that has redefined what ultimate goodness and human flourishing is, is that it's rooted in who we are in our sexuality and our sexual orientation and our sexual preferences. That that is the most important thing about us. And also that we cannot find fulfillment or happiness apart from those desires being expressed to the full. That's just one, one example of how that plays out. But it's not just systemic and cultural. It's also sort of spiritual, supernatural, and personal as well. And what I mean personal is not like personal, like it's, it's personal to each of us, but personal is in like it is a person. The Bible, and again, actually this is most humans at most times and places, have understood a profound truth that we often ignore or dismiss. And that is that there is a supernatural, malevolent being or beings that are opposed to the goodness and flourishing of human beings. The Bible uses a lot of different language to describe this person, uh, the Satan, 
devil, the accuser. Jesus calls him in John chapter 8, the father of lies. But this supernatural, malevolent being is actively seeking to destroy the goodness and beauty and truth and joy that God has intended for human flourishing. Now, I get that is hard. As modern Western people who are deeply rooted in a materialistic framework of understanding the world, that is a hard one to wrap my mind around. But I think it's one that our hearts intuitively know. And this is why I say that. Because you think about what are the stories that we love that capture our attention so quickly? Think about Stranger Things. Think about the Lord of the Rings. Think about Harry Potter. Uh, Even think about Stephen King novels. The stories that our hearts are so drawn to, they often include super, you have Sauron, you have Voldemort, you have the upside down, there where there is sort of this supernatural, this super powerful evil force that is working to bring destruction. What's hard for our heads to sometimes accept, our hearts I think intuitively know that there is something there. Their enemy is not flesh and blood that our true enemy is not just someone from the opposite political party or a different part of the country or a different voting record, but it is something that is more than we can see or grasp, that our enemy is darkness personified. Light came into the world, and darkness tried to overcome it, but it couldn't. And the question for us then here is, is do we recognize the darkness? Do we recognize the darkness? If we're going to be able to resist the darkness, we need to be willing to see it for what it is. But being willing to see the darkness around us and in us is hard. I think for at least two reasons, it's hard to see the darkness around us and want us to look at it because it's scary, it's depressing. We don't want to see those kinds of things. We don't want to acknowledge those places of brokenness because it's hard, It's, it's, it's fearful. But I also think sometimes it's hard for us to want to acknowledge the places of darkness, especially inside of us, because we get something from the darkness. If we were to acknowledge the darkness, it would mean that we'd have to change. It would mean we'd have to step out into a place where we're not comfortable. Which leads us to the next key idea here, that is if we're going to resist the darkness, not only do we need to recognize that there's darkness out here, but that often the greatest darkness is inside of us. The greatest darkness is often within us. And this is, again, what John is getting at here in verses 9 through 11, where he writes, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a, uh, a soldier. He fought in uh, the Red Army in Russia during World War II. And in 1945, toward the end of the war, he began to see the rise of communism coming in Russia. And he began to speak out against that. And eventually he was arrested and he was placed in the gulag system, the systems of, of pr- imprisonment and work camps in Russia. And he spent a, a long period of time enslaved and locked away in the gulag. And later, he kind of recounted that experience in this, this three-volume work, The Gulag Archipelago. And Solzhenitsyn was, uh, he had grown up in like an Orthodox kind of Christian church, but he had walked away from that, he'd become an atheist. But while he was in, imprisoned in that system, he, he became, kind of came back and returned to his faith. 
and he's reflecting on the darkness. And what you would expect him to point out is that there's such incredible darkness all around him. He's been enslaved, imprisoned, depressed. He could see the darkness of everyone around him. But when he reflects deeply on what the darkness has done, he actually points inside. Listen to what he writes. This is, I think, incredibly profound. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I mean, they're surrounded by such incredible darkness. Solzhenitsyn looks inside and recognizes that it's in me too. That dividing line of good and evil, it slices through every human heart. And who's willing to, to destroy a part of their own heart? And trying to think through how to diagnose that. How does that work? Why do we cling to the darkness? I've been really, again, helped by John Mark Homer's framework in Live No Lies. And he kind of lays out this framework in the book of, of here's how these things work together. He says that, that we're trapped in this darkness by deceptive lies that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And Christians kind of throughout the ages have used these categories of the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, to talk about the enemies of, of our lives, of our souls. And so the deceptive ideas, that's the lies that the enemy tells. Again, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And those lies, they, they play to our own disordered desires, that part that is in us that is kind of naturally bent away from God after our rebellion in the garden. But then those things are normalized in a culture where this just becomes, this is the way we do things together. So an example was one example. We could do this with many things, but take, take money, for instance. The lie that we are told by the evil one, it's a lie he's been telling from the very beginning, is that the world is a place of great scarcity, that there is not enough to go around. There's not enough. And so you have to hold on to all that you can to protect yourself and your family or your tribe, whatever it might be. But the lie is that this is a place of scarcity, not a place of abundance, but a place of scarcity. So that's the lie. But that lie, it plays already to our disordered desires, right? So I already have a kind of a disordered desire for, for my own comfort and satisfaction and ease. And so I hear this lie that there's not enough to go around, which plays to that disordered desire for, for ease and comfort above all else. And that's normalized by a system of consumerism and consumption that says the place that you find greatest happiness is accumulating things and possessions and having nice cars and houses and food, and, and that's what's really going to satisfy you more than anything else. So lies that play to disordered desires that are normalized in cultures. So the question here is, is will you confess the darkness? Can we confess the darkness in our own lives? And, and here is really key, because until we can sincerely acknowledge that the darkness is not just out there somewhere, or not just in those people over there somewhere, but that it's deeply here also, it, until we can acknowledge that, we're always going to be trapped into um, patterns and habits that we don't want. Uh, until we can acknowledge that, we are going to be forever slaves to our strongest momentary urges rather than our deepest truest longings. One of the greatest battles we face in our lives is 
whether we follow our strongest desires or our deepest desires. And, and so often those two things are in conflict. Our strongest desire in the moment for one more drink, one more, one more helping at the buffet, whatever it might be. Those are just the January ones I'm thinking of right now. But our strongest desires for just that one little more thing in the moment are often at, at war with, with our deepest desires to live a healthy life, to have a, a life of, 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 of moderation and health and joy. Until we acknowledge that there is part of us in us that is always going to crave that more thing, that, that, that we will always then be entrapped by those strongest desires rather than our deepest longings. Also, until we acknowledge that there's darkness in here, we're, we're going to feel powerless because our problems are always going to be outside of us, right? It's always going to be someone else's fault. It's always going to be the circumstances, the bad luck that, that just happened to me, and, and, and I, I can't do anything about it. Now, we've acknowledged there is all kinds of darkness out there that can wreck your life in all kinds of ways, right? Awful circumstances that you had nothing to do with. Just ugly, abusive people who have been a part of your life. There is real darkness out there, but until we say, I, but I, there's also darkness in here, we're never going to have any agency. We'll always be a victim of what's outside. So the only way out is to see what we don't want to see, that there is darkness in here too, in me, in you. So maybe just a couple of questions to think through about that, maybe here in this moment. What do, what do I want to keep in the dark? And what is that, that part of my life, that habit, that pattern, that behavior, whatever it might be, like, I just don't want people to know. I would, I would be scared if people saw my credit card statement. I'd be scared if people knew about this. I would be scared if, where's that place that you want to keep in the dark? Or it's kind of another way of getting at the same thing, but where don't you want the light? As you think through this, you've been thinking this, is there anything that came up in, in your own heart and your own mind is like, I do not want light going into this part? Because it would mean a change, it would mean giving something up, it would mean frustration, it would mean uh, discomfort. I think this is also, this is the third question here, is just, what do I think I'm getting from the dark? Because again, there's something that draws us to those places. And probably that desire is a good desire, but being met in a wrong way, in a disordered way. So what is it that I think I'm getting from those places of darkness? Okay, so we've talked a lot about the darkness this morning, but I want to come back to the question we asked at the very beginning, which is, what do we do about it? What, what do we do about the darkness outside and the darkness inside? Where do we turn for help? Is it a matter of, of the right uh, politicians being elected? Is it a matter of finding uh, the right therapist? Is it a matter of finding the right health care, more money, a stronger economy, a better spouse, a spouse, a different spouse, a stronger education? Where is the light that we need to get rid of this darkness? And I think in the West, we, we give all of those answers, but I think one of the most common answers to the question of where is the light that we need as a culture to, to free us from the darkness is, is education. If we can just get people educated with the right ideas, if we can break them out of these the kind of the wrong ideas, that if we can just keep people educated enough, then we can solve the problems that we have. I mean, education is a really good thing. It's a really important thing. We're heavily invested in public education as, as a church and helping schools for us. So the, education is not a bad thing. But here's what I want to suggest. 
is that education alone is not enough to deal with the darkness. And here's just a couple of examples. So you think about the Me Too movement when it emerged. If education, like having elite education in the, in the best cultural centers, if that's the answer, if that's the light, then you would expect in that moment that the places of elite education and the media or those high levels of education, that those would be the places that would be the most moral, that would be the most free from this kind of abuse. But we saw over and over again, right? Like fraternities at Ivy League schools, the, the biggest networks with the, the most informed, intelligent producers and anchors were the places where some of this was most rampant. And that's not like the church is immune from that, right? Some of the best, seemingly best churches with the best educated, most dynamic leaders are the places where abuse has also been perpetrated. Education alone is not enough. And another example of this is you think about um, World War II. Prior to World War II, the German people and culture, this was not a culture that lacked education. They were the envy of the world in their technology, in their learning, in their scholarship, and yet it was a culture that produced the Holocaust. Learning alone is not enough. Education alone cannot be the light that we need. And here's, I think, why. Because when you're in the dark, you don't need an encyclopedia. You need a flashlight, right? When Rachel Cox is wandering around lost in Wind Cave, she doesn't need a dictionary. She needs a headlamp. And this is John's main point here this morning, that the only hope in darkness is light. That's his core claim in this passage. There are lots of people and institutions and organizations that are saying, we have the light you need. But John's coming to you, the true light that was coming into the world was Jesus. He's the only true light. Again, Martin Luther King Jr. recognized this as well. But I want you to, if there's only one thing you write down this morning, I hope it's this. And that is that only Jesus can overcome the darkness around you and in you. Only Jesus can overcome the darkness that is around you and in you. Like I said Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1963 book, The Strength of Love, he, he recognized that like raw power, raw strength, better education, those things were not going to overcome the racism and the racial injustice in the United States. He writes this. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus is the light that we need. And Jesus cannot give us the light that sets us free apart from giving us himself. It's not as though Jesus can sort of say, hey, here's a flashlight that's going to help you in your darkness. Let me know how it goes. He is the light. The only way to get the freedom that we long for is to receive him as the light. Later on in the Gospel of John, he's going to say those very words, I am the light. Which unless he is who he says he is, is an incredibly outrageous claim. But Jesus is claiming here, and John is trying to convince us to what he found to be true is that Jesus is the true life. And you see this in John uh, chapter 1, verse 12, as we keep reading this text. He says, But to all who did receive him, the word Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. You know, John introduces a new metaphor in that passage. Not just light and dark, but that when we receive Jesus, when we receive the one who is the light, 
that we actually are reborn, like we're, new life is, happens, that we're adopted into a new family. So this morning I want to call each and every one of us to receive the light. Whether you've been journeying with Jesus for a long time or maybe you've never, never made any real commitment to him, wherever you find yourself this morning, I want you to receive afresh or maybe for the first time the light that Jesus offers, the hope that he has. And, and the battle there is always going to be, again, whether you've been walking with Jesus a long time or this is a first time step for you, the battle is always going to be, be between whether you're, you are willing to stay miserable in what you know or be uncomfortable in what you don't yet know. As human beings, we often prefer the misery of the known to the discomfort of the unknown. How many people do you know, maybe this is you, that you've been in a, just a miserable job, but you know, it, it paid the bills and it was secure. And so you stayed in a miserable job rather than taking the risk of, of saying, you know, I'm going to put my resume together and I'm going to go try to find something different or I'm going to quit and I'm going to start my own business or whatever it might be. But often the misery of the known is, is easier to stay in than the, the discomfort of the unknown. Or again, how many of us are, are trapped in a pattern of some kind of unwanted behavior, too much TV, too much food, too much YouTube, too much TikTok, whatever it is. But the, the discomfort of leaving that thing behind seems more unpleasant to us than the misery of staying in it. Because it's like, well, what am I going to do without that thing in my life? In these moments, that's often where the battle, I think, gets played out. Are we wanting to stay in the misery, the comfort of the misery we know, than the, the discomfort of something different? And I just want to tell you this morning that turning to the light in a part of your life or to Jesus for the first time, it's always uncomfortable. Just how it works. If you're in a dark room and someone turns on the light, you're watching a movie or you're waking up and, and, and you know, your spouse turns on the light in the middle of the night for something, it's like actually physically painful, right? When the light hits your eyes if you've been in the dark. It's always uncomfortable at first. But the discomfort far outweighs the misery that we endure in the dark.